Hello, hello everyone. Good evening or good night everybody. So welcome to episode 32 of Tetarik with Wallet. So I hope you have your Tetarik ready like I do. And it's going to be a fun episode hopefully. So today I will be joined by Dr. Humaira Zainal. And she is, Dr. Humaira is here in her personal capacity as a scholar, as an academic. Okay. So she is of course my my co-author for our now infamous paper on Chinese privilege. But today it's not about Chinese privilege. Okay, so I have done many episodes on that. Uh, you can refer to my past collection with Melin uh, and Ambassador Alami and with uh, Bertha Hansen. Uh, today it will be about Dr. Humaira's book, recently published book called The Primordial Modernity of Malay Nationalism, Contemporary Identity in Malaysia and Singapore. So it's a fascinating title and it is a fascinating read. I have finished uh, reading and I want to recommend it uh, and you guys should be reading it. Uh, but I don't know how much <laughs> it costs at the moment. So when is my book going to be out? Uh, good question, Steffi. So the previous one, uh, which is also something I don't recommend because it costs 200 bucks. Uh, but working on the next one. So hopefully, hopefully. Uh, when it's out, I will make that announcement, of course. And then I'll get somebody to host a book talk with me. But for now, it is about Dr. Humay. So how are you doing? Yeah, good, good. How are you? I am, I am okay. I mean, I'm okay. The night just got better. <laughs> As we start this session. Okay, so uh, so firstly, congratulations. How much is this book, by the way? Is it around 170, 180? Yeah, currently around 100 plus on our okay. page.com. I think Hino Kunia is uh, selling it for 200 plus. Oh, yes. 200 plus. Okay. So is there going to be a soft cover that will come out? Do you uh, know? I suppose so, but it won't be anytime soon. Right, it'll be a year plus, probably, right? Probably, yeah. I'll be yeah, okay. quote later. Okay. Okay, so I I believe it's it's either available at National Library or will be available soon, right? Yeah, so we've already uh, requested this. Uh, we've requested NLB to stock our book, so it should be uh, at the NLB branch in Bugis in a couple of months' time, hopefully. Okay, okay, yeah. so thank you. So this is your. The first time, right? You're talking about the book publicly? Yeah. Right, okay, so so thank you so much. So uh, so let's get to it. So what are your main arguments in this book, right? And why do they matter, right? Why should, why did you write it? And what, what are your contributions, I suppose? And what can uh, an ordinary Singaporean or Malaysian, how can they benefit from this book? Yeah, so uh, first of all, hello everyone. Thanks thanks for tuning in and thanks for having me um, Yeah, on your live session. I had to reactivate this account just to appear on your live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, first of all, this book was uh, written with my former PhD advisor, Prof. Kamaluddin from uh, NTU Sociology. Uh, it was funded by SSRC Grant, Social Science Council, that was awarded to uh, Prof. Uh, oh, Prof. was it? Oh, yeah. For, for that large-scale Inf study. Infamous Tethoff, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. national <laughs> Different Asian countries, including Singapore and Malaysia. Yeah, so 
uh, we would like to thank all our research assistants. There were more than uh, five of you uh, for all your help with the data collection. We really appreciate your hard work. Yeah, so um, our book basically takes on a comparative uh, transnational perspective in um, examining contemporary Malay national identity in Singapore and Malaysia uh, through the lens of um, primordial modernity. Yeah, so specifically it explores how um, Malays in Singapore and Malaysia uh, conceptualize and negotiate their um, ethnic identity in relation to uh, the state's construction of uh, Malay national identity. Yeah, and um, methodologically, it employs a critical discourse uh, analysis of uh, elite and mass texts um, in the Malay language that were published um, in 2010 and 2015, uh, all of which still hold a lot of uh, relevance to uh, contemporary social discourses. Right. So, so elite texts would be government speeches and, and statements, right? So mass texts, what are you looking at? Are you looking at Twitter or Facebook mm. or what is it that you're looking at? Yeah, so um, first of all, we need to define what elites mean, right? So in our yeah. book, we refer to the elites as um, the political leaders, religious leaders um, in Singapore and Malaysia, um, cultural laureates as well as uh, members of uh, civil society and then mm. uh, by masses we are referring to the lay citizens that means you know people uh, who do not hold any uh, political positions and are not um, rep representatives of uh, religious cultural or uh, civil society organizations yeah, so um, yeah, elite texts, as you have rightly uh, mentioned, we examine political speeches like national day rallies, um, yeah, general election speeches. Um, mm. What else did we examine? Uh, Op-eds, okay, and also, um, let me see, uh, school textbooks. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, by school textbooks, I'm referring to um, the mainstream textbooks published by um, the national schools of both countries. Mm. And then for elite texts, we examine um, letters to the editor in the forum page of our newspapers. Uh, what else did we examine? Novels, um, mm. films. We started off with uh, these genres first, examining um, other sources because we thought it would be good to analyze um, yeah, both mainstream and non-mainstream texts for a diversity of views. Yeah, so from then on, we um, decided to also uh, explore um, political plays as well as uh, documentaries produced by uh, activists. Mm. Okay, so after exploring all of that, what were your conclusions? Oh, okay. So, conclusion, I, I shan't give away too much. Because... <laughs> oh, you want to sell the book. Okay, so please buy the yeah. book. <laughs> okay, so, okay, but but at least what is the main thesis from from the from the book? Yeah, without mm. giving away too much, yeah. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, so, um, basically, we, we did a discourse analysis of um, identity categories and then uh, came up with... Um, discursive constructions, right, of national identity. And um, we argue for a synthesis of both the primordial as well as the more uh, aspects of Malayness. 
in uh, analyzing how Malays and uh, government institutions conceptualize um, the Malay national identity. Yeah, so Islam forms the top identity category in both countries, um, which is expected. Uh, but even though you know Islam is the common identity uh, marker for Malays in both um, Singapore and Malaysia, um, the Malays in these countries embody um, Malay national identity in their own unique ways. Yeah. So basically, uh, Singaporean and Malaysian Malays uh, react to the modernist discourses of their respective uh, nations differently uh, when reinstating their primordial uh, modern identities. Yeah. Okay. And so, sorry, uh, you use the term primordial modernity. Uh, you've used it a, a couple of times already and it's in the main title of your book also. What, what do you mean by, by these words individually, primordial modernity, and also by uh, the, the phrase primordial modernity together? What do you mean by that? Mm, yeah, so uh, by primordial, we are referring to um, the so-called traditional aspects of our identity, such as language, culture, religion, um, and modernism. By modernism, we refer to um, Benedict Anderson's, uh, sorry, not refer, we, we actually problematize Benedict Anderson's uh, concept of modernity, which is um, rather capitalistic. Yeah, so in response, we adopt uh, Dietrich Jung from uh, Denmark's idea of uh, modernity, which um, basically um, combines these two ideas together uh, in the sense that we don't see primordialism and modernity as uh, binary categories. Mm. Okay, okay, right. So uh, just now when you mentioned that um, the elites are the political elites, okay, religious elites okay then you mentioned civil society as well i've always thought about i mean because civil society is large right so who in civil society is uh is uh is an elite who is in civil civil society is part of the laity right according to your definition right so do you consider yourself and in that conception like someone like yourself is an elite or somebody who who is part of the laity Oh, uh, it depends on who's looking at it, right? No, I, uh, you, you, based on your uh, own... Okay, based on <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so based on this definition, I would um, yeah, consider myself as um, part of the civil society. So yeah. part of the... So academic discourse would be part of the elite discourse as well, right? Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I want to get to it because you because the idea of primordialism, as I understand it, right, as a non-sociology person, right, uh, is something that is uh, innate, right, and you ascribe certain characteristics to a race, right, and that's what primordialism means, right. So, uh, and we cannot uh, run away from the topic of the cultural deficit hypothesis, right, which is which is an albatross or is it still plaguing uh, Malays in Malaysia and Singapore? Uh, so what do you think? Is the cultural deficit hypothesis, does it still matter? Uh, what, what do younger Malays from your research, what do younger Malays think about it? Have they internalized it or do they challenge it? Do they problematize it or it's not even on the table for them? Or not, mm -hmm. or not on their radar, I mean, yeah. Right, yeah. So uh, first of all, we need to understand what cultural deficit uh, means right so 
from my understanding, this um, hypothesis posits that individuals from some cultural groups would um, yeah, lack the ability to achieve just because of their cultural uh, background. So it basically attributes um, the causes of underachievement to the traits and norms of that particular uh, cultural group. So uh, in my opinion, I think it is still prevalent in uh, many spheres of our social life. For example, uh, it is still perpetuated by the mainstream media, right? Yeah. Still internalized by um, some members of the majority group. So especially especially those with um, yeah, limited exposure and um, interaction with minorities of um, diverse background or, or those who have a cultural baggage having grown up in societies where they have been minorities. Yeah, and among the Malays, um, I would say there are yeah, still some who internalize it by refusing to associate themselves or mingle with fellow Malays uh, due to the yeah, negative stereotypes identifiable with uh, that race. But um, there are also Malays uh, who are not passive, right? Meaning to say they do not identify with uh, the rhetoric of these problematic Malays. Uh, because they do realize that the construction of um, the minority other is necessary yeah, in order to make state policies and narratives appear desirable, right? Yeah, so for example, um, they, they do recognize that the definition of uh, success is broad, um, but the way in which society has come to define uh, success is very parochial and is often limited to uh, academic achievement. Yeah, so um, yeah, I'm currently working on uh, this research project where we examine the aspirations of um, Muslim millennials in Singapore. Oh. And, yeah, it involves uh, individual interviews with you know indiv um, Muslims from various uh, professions and socioeconomic backgrounds. Yeah, so oh millennials. Uh, then why haven't you interviewed me yet? Oh, sorry, sorry. If, if Gen Z, Gen Z, then you interview me. Yeah. But anyway, what's, what's the, what's the, what are the preliminary findings from, from that uh, research uh, in terms of the cultural deficit hypothesis or the, uh, the aspirations of the younger Malays? Okay, so uh, based on our preliminary findings, we, we have individuals who don't identify with this uh, cultural deficit uh, theory. So um, they, they are proud of their athletic talents and achievements. Um, they are proud of becoming an athlete, for example, but they, they do realize that, um, you know, they, that there are certain gaps in uh, the educational system that prevent them from achieving, uh, right. from fulfilling their dreams. Uh. Right. Yeah. So, so you mean in the past there, there were people who, I mean, even from your own experience, uh, mm -hmm. there are people who used to downplay their athletic abilities or their non-academic abilities or because you you mentioned that specifically right that as a sign of them rejecting cultural deficit hypothesis why yeah. why did you mention that particular attribute yeah i think it's with a maturity and a sense of um, heightened political consciousness uh, as they grow up, they get exposed to all these alternative discourses they start to realize that hey actually it's not about me but it's actually about, you know, the gaps in the educational system, you know. Um, they wanted to be an athlete back then, but, um, you know, the school subjects are mostly about math, science, nothing to do with sports, right? So, um, 
yeah, as they start to grow up, um, they then realize it's not about their individual shortcomings, but rather uh, the gaps within the educational system. Mm. I see, I see, I see. You know, I mean, um, I don't know how relevant this is uh, today because, I mean, the, the societal conditions have changed, right? But in the past, I mean, when we were growing up, right, um, everybody played football, right? Even those who didn't play football, uh, played football, right? Uh, I mean, you were, you were socialized into playing or you were pressurized uh, into it. And those who didn't, right, had to go out of their way to not play football, right? And there were some who, I mean, some, I, I mean, I know, I've been told by some, uh, some of my Chinese friends, some of them told, told me, this many, many years ago, you know, their parents didn't let them play football because they didn't want to mix uh, with the Malays too much. But I've also heard Malay parents say that. Right, yeah. they didn't want, yeah, and you know, uh, the elite Malay. I mean, not not everyone, of course, but you know, usually it's from yeah. that kind of, it's yeah. from that kind of background, right? So you've you've heard similar things, and you've encountered in your own research as well. Yeah, I mean, um, like I just said, the elite Malays would go for sports like uh, golf. Um... <laughs> hey, careful, Doctor Yakub. I saw his name just now here. He's an avid golfer. <laughs> oh, <ooh. laughs> But yeah, he likes football also, so it's okay. He's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So so there there is almost a a conscious effort to not want to be associated with the Malay sports, right? Like football and right, and this uh, intersects with social class as well, right? So uh, I'm currently teaching this module about um, how we understand leisure. Uh, or leisure. So I, I think leisure is also a function of social class, right? Mm. Yeah, in, in terms of uh, how the elites would um, take part in activities where they are not uh, seen in public, like playing the piano, uh, going for musicals, watching um, operas, uh, whereas mm. yeah, the those from the lower SES uh, tend to be associated with uh, sports where where uh, they are seen in public that's associated with, um, you know, uh, rough, roughness and un uncivilized behavior. Mm. Right, 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 right. So uh, interesting that you mentioned those because I remember there's this, uh, maybe the younger ones may not know, uh, the, the show Yes Minister, which became Yes Prime Minister. There was this particular segment about this, about how the upper upper class their their social social activities are about plays and theaters uh but but don't forget uh whereas the for the for the lower middle class or those from the lower socioeconomic status is the sports right uh but also theater and plays that is that can also be a an arena of resistance and subversion right but but anyway that's a separate that's a separate topic but but thank you for that so uh, I want, is there anything else you wanted to mention on the cultural deficit hypothesis or should we move on to the next one? Yeah, I think this cultural deficit theory has uh, taken a different form um, where it gets internalized within the Malay community. Yeah, yeah if you were to read um, recent news, right, you realize that there's been some recent efforts by community leaders to initiate all these Communities of Success program, uh, yeah, which actually complement all these um, success stories 
being featured in our national newspapers about successful um, members of the Malay community, about high flyers who have made it. Yeah, we usually appear on the front pages of the newspaper, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think this is um yeah an overt strategy to quell uh, Malay marginal marginality and at the same time to trumpet the success of uh, meritocracy in Singapore. You know, and you realize when individuals from humble backgrounds are featured, their resilience to overcome all odds are usually emphasized, right? But uh, like what I argued in my book, uh, while all these efforts can be a source of uh, inspiration for the community, seen on the flip side, um, reports on the achievements of these individuals, um, you know, tend to ignore all the inequalities that are still prevalent within uh, the education system within our social system as well as uh, the potential challenges that minorities continue to face while making progress yeah so in reality um all these individual shortcomings um get uh, ignored uh, the, the systemic shortcomings get ignored in favor yeah. of individual achievements yeah 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 so i think it's counterproductive when um it causes some to view successful individuals as uh, elitists. Like, you know, uh, the sentiment that, oh, I can never be like him or her, you know, because she's from, say, Raffles or from NUS or from Harvard. Yeah, so I guess this um, this is where the cultural deficit gets internalized within the community and this is when it can uh, backfire, so-called. So you're saying that is not a good strategy, basically? putting forward people who, oh, which I, I, it's a bit strange. I don't know whether it's done in the other newspapers, but I know it's done in the Malay newspaper, right? Like, oh, yeah. first class honours and, yeah, yeah, and this, yeah, yeah. Right. So you think it's actually counterproductive? Mm, in a way, I think I'll be more interested in um, knowing how the community would want to tackle all these uh, structural gaps and uh, inequalities within the system. It's fine to uh, portray all these success stories. It can be a source of inspiration for the community. I mean, the Straits Times has also been featuring uh, PS, uh, PSC scholars, right? Right, so, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then at the same time, it has to come in tandem with all these... Um, uh, political development, all this uh, systemic discussions. Right. Mm. right, 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 right. Okay, okay. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think I think that that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I wanted to uh, move on to uh, to something. This was in your fragmented cosmopol uh, cosmopolitanism uh, chapter. Uh, so uh, you basically uh, correct me if I'm I'm wrong. Okay, so if I'm misreading your uh, your chapter, you basically say that there was a different response to the, or there are different ideas about foreign workers in Singapore. So one is you have it at the elite level where foreign workers is a very transactional relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at the mass level, Singaporeans see foreign workers through a humanitarian lens. Am I, am I reading it correctly or am I misreading yeah, we did argue that. Yeah, yeah, you you did argue that, right? Yeah. So, but don't you think the fact that uh, the workers have been living in these dormitories for all these years, right, without any 
uproar from the uh, community, right? Uh, from the wider Singaporean community. Don't you think actually is ultimately if if you are, if the argument is the leaders are elitist, right? Isn't that just because Singapore is an elitist society? Yeah. And the leaders are a reflection of ourselves. Right. Right. Yeah. So I guess um. Okay. I I hope I have interpreted your question correctly. I I think in a way yes, it it is a reflection of our this sense of. Not just elitism, but ignorance, right? I think Singaporeans' display of our concern and empathy towards vulnerable and marginal communities, such as the migrant workers, have been rather sporadic and inconsistent. Um, I think public dis- discussions and appeals to improve their living conditions are reignited only when we hear of uh, accidents involving migrant workers and I think their cramped living conditions may not be brought to light if not from the pandemic also. Yeah. Yeah. So while I think advocacy groups are very actively voicing out uh, right. their concerns, we seldom hear um, Muslim organizations, for example, condemning the policies, right? Even if they do condemn, uh, their voices remain out of the public sphere. And even when they do intervene, their efforts remain limited to fundraising. Uh, which is laudable, uh, but it's not good enough to effect uh, changes at the policy level. Right. Mm. Okay. Okay. So um, ultimately, we uh, the leaders and the policies that are done, it can only be done with the blessings of the people, right? I mean, I guess why why I'm asking that is right in the in the uh, thick of uh, those events, right? Right in the middle of those events, the the outbreak in the dormitories, right, and then the elections was held, and it wasn't an election issue, right? The issue of foreign workers wasn't an election issue by both the government or the opposition parties, right? And that shows that probably because a lot of Singaporeans were not thinking about it as a as an important enough issue, right? Yeah. Uh, and I always, I always feel that elections really measure the conviction of a society, right? Like what, what matters to you, right? In a survey, you can write down anything, like uh, mm. the 100 attributes that I actually want, right? But when push comes to shove, uh, or is it 100 characteristics of a, a society I want? But when push comes to shove during elections, then we'll see what are the issues on the table, right? So that's why I just wanted to, uh, to ask you on that. So, so thank you. Uh, so let's say now. I mean, you've done a lot of research on the, and hopefully this is your first, not your last, uh, book, right? I, I mean, I'm quite sure it won't be. Uh, so, uh, what if you were the minister of Muslim affairs, right? Uh, <laughs> so what would you do? What What is one or what, what what one or two things that you would do, right? It, like immediately, that you would change. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Minister of Muslim Affairs. <laughs> Assuming the position has uh has some power, I mean it does, right? So what would you do within your within your capacity, right? Hmm. Okay. Uh, I as a woman, I may not even get appointed to the top position of a predominantly male Malay organization I'm in right now. I mean, even if I am elected to the board, my role might merely be tokenistic. But, oh um, wow! So that that is a uh, that is a call for action for Rima, right? That's what you're. <laughs> so please, please make her the head of Rima. Yeah. So. <laughs> to me, this 
offline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, uh, assuming, assuming you do, assuming you do get, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can world where um Muslim woman gets to be the minister of Muslim affairs, right? Well, I thought we were at least. I thought we were close enough. I thought like President Halima could have easily fulfilled that function, right? Mm. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, now we are we are further back. Yeah, but mm. anyway, yeah. Assuming that you were, yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, first of all, I would uh, use all the power in my hands to get more Malays to the restricted sectors of the military that they have been denied of. <laughs> I'm not sure how uh, it's going to be done. I think you're in a better position to do that, given your training in political science and public policy. Uh, but yes, I would like to see more Malays uh, in the army, in the SAS. Um, that's one. And uh, second, I would definitely change my leadership style um, to one that is more assertive, uh, yet empathetic. So, uh, yeah, one of the hot-button issues, right, that often causes friction among the Muslim community, uh, gender relations, correct? Yeah, such that whenever these issues um, are discussed publicly, they get blown out of proportion uh, to the extent that, you know, it gets brought down to support for either one camp or another, um, such that, you know, the real issues that are at stake are often ignored, the perpetrators are not punished accordingly, and the victims do not get um, sufficient help. And we've seen this through the online sexualization of um, religious teachers that happened last year, right? Mm. Yeah, yet we seldom uh, hear the forceful voice of our Malay Muslim leaders in uh, reconciling tensions among the community. I mean, we hear them uh, condemning the acts of the perpetrators uh, on social media, but, but there is a lack of transparency on the actions taken thereafter. And also a lack of uh, leadership, right, in steering the conversation in a mature, respectful, and constructive manner. Yeah, uh, is it is it uh, is it the job of politicians to steer the conversations, or I mean, on any any particular uh, societal manner? Do you think it's useful to to have uh, to impose those kinds of expectations on politicians, right? Why, 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 why do we want politicians to steer conversations? Yeah. Why can't, why can't we, like normal people, like other people, like people with no political agenda, why can't they steer uh, conversations? Why, I mm. guess, why do, why, why do we expect politicians to do that, right? Yeah. Well, apart from their high salary. <laughs> <laughs> Right, with high salaries come a great responsibility, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, they're supposed to be leaders of the community. Um, and but, but you see, are, are they, are they, were they, I guess even that is something that we need to uh, think about, right? I mean, uh, because uh, they are de facto leaders of the community, right? So that's the first thing. But, but secondly, um, I guess my, my worry is, right, why we don't need politicians for every single issue, right? There are some issues, I think, which uh, is, is best left uh, to the non-politicians to do, right? So my worry is if you get, first of all, we'll be so dependent on, this, on the state uh, to do everything for us. And secondly, politicians will always be more than happy to come into every issue to 
to be the savior, right? So I'm not sure whether that would be useful. I mean, I I'm just I'm just interested to know what why you think uh, that that is within the purview, or that should be within the purview of a politician. Yeah, I think just um you've got to have a sense of um amana or responsibility, right? To uh not just go from door to door, you know, handing out a uh, goodie bags, um. Yeah, initiating programs, but also impact <laughs> at the broader structural level. Yeah, I said Amana is a responsibility, a social responsibility. Um, yeah, and some of these people are trained in prestigious overseas universities, Oxford, Harvard, Ivy Leagues. Um, so the kind of contributions that they give NTU. Back, have yeah, you mentioned up. prestigious university, right? So I mentioned yeah. NTU. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the kind of uh, training, the kind of uh, background that they come from. I mean, after all, you know, some of um, their overseas education were funded by the community, by society. So the more they should contribute back. Right, right. Okay, okay. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't dispute that point. I think, I think all of those uh, points are definitely valid, right? I'm just, I personally am not sure whether... Uh, uh, we want politicians to be involved uh, in every single uh, issue for the society, right? So I, I, I always feel that some things, uh, the, the, the less a politician think the, the better. But I mean, of course, I mean, that's, that's a, and the debate is on what issues are those, right? And then why do we have politicians, for instance? Okay. All right. So, um, hmm. What else should we discuss? <laughs> What else should we discuss, Amara? What What do you want to? <laughs> um, yeah, Muslim um leaders and their contributions, So, I I'm not sure whether I'm on the right track because uh, yeah, I'm not political science, so not exactly sure what this position entails. But if I were to be the minister in charge of Muslim affairs, I think, um, in the selection of young Malay candidates for, for the party, I would not choose someone solely for his or her, you know, stellar academic and um, volunteering record. I would not choose, um, yeah, someone purely on the basis of uh, his or her profession or position in society. I would not choose someone just because he is a lawyer or doctor or PhD holder. Yeah, because, um, you know, one may be a high flyer, right? But if, um, but he or she may not be attuned to social discourses, which themselves are very dynamic. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so you mentioned the things that you would not choose a person on. What would you choose a person on? Then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I would choose um, a public intellectual, a public intellectual in the Syed Hussein Alatas's um, sense of the term, someone who... Um, can come up with fresh perspectives, alternative ideas uh, to solve long-standing social issues um, and not just someone who uh, echoes whatever's been uh, debated previously. Uh, someone who is willing to go against the grain, not just for the sake of it, but for the sake of uh, effecting positive social mm. Okay, okay, fair enough. Thank you so much. Uh, so... Uh... Just now I was, of course, uh, being whimsical right? when I say what else should we discuss, right? Because, I mean, the elephant in the room is 
<laughs> so Ashraf is saying lack of halal food options in prestigious universities. <laughs> I saw a few NTUMS uh, Muslim Society people. Please take note of this comment. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I mean, in a, a whimsical manner, I said that because the elephant in the room is, of course, you know, our paper Chinese privilege, right? Uh, on Chinese privilege, and I really want to be conciliatory. I don't want to be uh, adversarial in the next part. Uh, conciliatory, not not uh, you and I, but with uh, with other people. So maybe just a broader look at it, right? So since we wrote that paper, right? Uh, how how do you think has the how, the discussion has morphed? What what do you think the discussion has morphed into? Yeah, of uh, Chinese privilege. I just realized that um, the IPS conference was held around sometime last this, year. Around last year. this time, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. A coincidence that uh, yeah, yeah 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 so I mean I I I still didn't get the invite from IPS this year did you have you have you gotten any invite yeah? no no, I no okay okay yeah so that is okay maybe next year yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so I so, think, uh, yeah uh, with the exception of a few academics you know Shannon Ang Lavi. Um, yeah, Lavanya, who who have tried to uh, reconceptualize the debate. I think the scope of um, discussion uh, remains parochial among the general public, lah. And uh, by parochial, I mean pitting one group against another instead of highlighting uh, the broader issue of uh, structural injustice. Uh, when you know, in fact, citing reasons like Chinese privilege is an imported concept from the West um, has only exacerbated tensions between the majority and uh, minority groups. Uh. And I think within academic circles, um, there has not been a consistency among uh, those who claim to champion equality. So they may be uh, contesting against one form of uh, inequality but remain silent when another form of uh, inequality is being discussed. Yeah, in my opinion. So I guess in summary, um, the argument that uh, Chinese privilege is a Western concept, right? Yeah, only suppress public discussion and uh, make those who disagree that Chinese privilege um, exists buy into this argument regardless of their rationale. Right. So, uh, so I, I, I definitely agree. So this, this you are referring very uh, obliquely or maybe not uh, to the, <laughs> the paper, right? The, the paper that refuted us, right? So I definitely agree with you. I mean, I mean, it's a joke. I mean, to say it's a Western import, right? When, when you use terms like multiculturalism, secularism, I mean, did that come from Cambodia or something? Right? That came from the West as well. I mean, we are happy to use those terms, right? As we should, uh, and we should apply them to our local context, right? So that aside, so I mean the the rejoinder paper aside, right? Uh, don't you think actually PM Lee, even though initially I was also a bit, okay, what is the point of the National Day Rally? But, but upon closer inspection, right? Don't you think that was an olive branch of sorts, right? So uh, he, he did say, he did say that there is no such thing as Chinese privilege, but he went on to mention that minorities do face certain things, right? Because he was defining Chinese privilege very differently from us, right? Because we were not talking about constitutional privileges, right? We were not talking about that. We were talking about unearned advantages, right? Uh, so don't you think that was sort of an olive branch uh, given uh, 
extended, uh, where he was trying to balance all segments of society, right? Like he was trying to assure people that, uh, you know, don't worry, uh, there is no such thing as in as Chinese privilege. I mean, you don't have to be offended. At the same time, he says, look here, he was also telling the majority, look here, you need to understand that minorities go go through certain things. Don't you think that is a win actually for the discourse? Oh, I think it just sounds very contradictory. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, the sense that um, majority people, including myself, was that um, yeah, Chinese privilege doesn't exist in Singapore. And yeah, when I spoke with uh, a lot of my friends, they, they did buy into this argument. Well, be, perhaps for a lack of um, better arguments, but I don't blame them because they were not trained in uh, area studies. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I think it sounded very contradictory. Right. Oh, so that speech itself. Okay. So yeah. I, because I saw it sort of as a political balancing act, right? So, which mm -hmm. is why I thought, you know, in a true compromise, no one is truly happy, right? So something's got to give uh, for, oh, you don't seem to buy that. No. <laughs> I see it in your face. <laughs> it should be articulated in all languages, in your English speech, Malay speech, and not just your Mandarin speech, right? Right, but even in the Mandarin speech, he did say that minorities do uh, go through certain things, right? So that was mentioned, right? But what was what was what was mentioned? You're right. So the yeah. explicit denial uh, of the existence of Chinese privilege. Yeah. So I personally think I think the discourse has uh, first of all, I think we need to put things into context also, right? Our paper was one of many papers presented at a two-day conference. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that ours got published first in a journal and. That's why it was refuted, right? But before that, like most of our other papers, for one year, it was where most of our papers are usually are, right? In the dustbins of academic libraries, right? And mm. nobody cared about it until the rejoinder came one, one year later, right? So, so maybe we have to thank them. It's because of that that uh, the concept uh, not, not entered the public uh, discourse or the, uh, the language, I would say it re-entered, right? Because I think Alfian and Sangeeta, they were the first wave, right? Yeah. I was maybe the third or fourth wave of people who... It's just that it was the first time probably it was in an academic paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what are some other projects that you're working on, Humaira, other than the one that you mentioned earlier about the millennials? Uh, mostly in uh, health services research, lah. Um, and looking at how we can improve the medical education curriculum to include um, digital skills, digital competencies uh, for our medical graduates. Yeah. Okay. Am so I, I, I wanted to ask. Uh, no, no, no. As in, as in not for me. Uh, yeah. So uh, I wanted to ask, I mean, since you mentioned that, uh, do you think there is any ut utility in using race-based data to for health outcomes. What, mm. what do you think? Yeah. Yeah, so my colleagues uh, may have a different opinion on this uh, because in sociology, we have always, um, we, we often uh, sideline race and bring in other social categories instead, right? Like, um, yeah, yeah. The, to account for uh, social conditions, illnesses. Um, but there, there may be some truth, but it's still 
uh, I think under-researched. There will be some truth in the influence of our genetic factors, um, DNA structures um, in affecting health outcomes. So that, that is still uh, under-researched and that is something that I would like to uh, conduct more research on in the future. Mm. Okay, okay. So yeah, I I personally have no problems with it also you know so i mean if indians for instance if indians are more prone to heart diseases which the data seems to suggest that then i would like to know that right? <laughs> yeah i would like to know that yeah so i think we shouldn't be afraid of the data right although i would say one problem is we have we have race-based data but we do not have socioeconomic data when also that that also actually matters right socioeconomic status yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Just apply to the realm of uh, health. Uh, it applies to other yeah. social as well, such as education, right? Right, like right, right. Absolutely. First data from twenty uh, twenty, the recent one. We must be asking ourselves why is it that the Malays are still performing as such? You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah there has to be some uh, gap, some barriers, limitations yeah. existing uh, that needs to be tackled. Yeah, and I, I don't have a problem with the data being uh, issued by race as well because I think if there's a problem, we have to admit there's a problem, right? But I yeah. think to know that what the problem is, we need to have a fuller set of data, right? So right. continue to have the race-based data, but then have the socioeconomic data as well, right? Then then we would really know what the problem is, right? So I also don't want us to be sugarcoating things. Mm-hmm. Right, and and we may not. I think we are in agreement with this. I mean, I, I, probably a lot of our colleagues would not be right. So, uh, a lot of uh, uh, social scientists they would not uh, want race-based data, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, oh, it's strange. Uh, there is a comment. It's strange that local COVID numbers are not race-based. Do we need to know if a particular race has a higher COVID death ratio? Oh, yeah. I mean, why not? Right. I think it it does make sense. I mean. Uh, we can extend it to other other things, uh, uh, not not just COVID. I mean, education, health, yeah. health outcomes, whatever it is. I think uh, if there is value there, I I don't see why not, right? Uh, but race is but only one factor that matters. Yeah. Uh, is is there anything else that you wanted to say, Doctor Humaira? Mm, yeah, I I have this issue about the East-West dichotomy in the discussion on Chinese privilege. Oh, you want to get back to Chinese privilege? We get on, get yeah. on the floor, is yours. I was yeah. trying to stay away from that, but okay. Oh. <laughs> no, carry on, carry on, carry on. Yeah. yeah. I think, like I said, it's very parochial. And I think moving forward, um, we should expand this discussion uh, beyond the East-West binary and ask ourselves, like other issues, you know, raised through this concept necessarily uh, Western or are they universal, right? Because the systemic issues that um, that are faced by minorities are a universal issue. So if that's what some people have been uh, denying, then that's what a distraction from important conversation looks like, right? Um, yeah, and that's what academic myopia looks like and that's what intellectual scarcity truly looks like. Oh wow! Okay, so <laughs> but, but, so that that I I think we should <laughs> we should end on that because I don't think we can we can top that right. So that is what uh, intellectual scarcity really looks like. So thank you so much. I had targeted forty minutes only. We went over by about ten minutes, but it's fine. 
I think it was worth it. So, so thank you so much. And everybody, please do check out this book, The Primordial Modernity of Malay Nationalism. So Fresh of the Oven by Dr. Humaira and Professor Kamaluddin, who is from uh, NTU as well. Uh, so thank you, everybody. And uh, see you guys for the... Sorry? Sorry? Yeah, yeah uh, I wanted to share the discount code, right? With the audience. Yeah, so uh, the discount oh, code... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Carry on, carry on. Share the discount code. Okay, so you can purchase it on uh, Routledge, www.routledge.com. Uh, at the moment, I think it's still on 20% discount. So if you apply this uh, code at checkout, you may get 30% discount. Uh, but this is only after the 20% discount have been uh, removed, uh, the 20% tag. Uh, so the code is uh, ADC2022. Uh, yeah, so ADC2022. ADC 22. Oh, ADC 22. That's all. Yeah, A for Apple, D for Donkey. So this one, the one that I typed, ADC 22. Yeah, but it's still um, expensive. I think I myself may not be able to afford. So yeah. if you're... I mean, I'm a, I'm a good friend. I bought, you know, <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's always... I mean, I will always... I will always buy the new books on Singapore. I mean, it's always... I mean, there's only so so many, right? So so few. So I will always purchase them. So thank you so much. I will include the discount uh, code in the description uh, in the link in, on both YouTube and on Instagram. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, it was a fascinating discussion. No yeah. problem, no problem. Thank you for using this platform, choosing this platform to be the first time you are discussing your book. Okay. Okay, good night, everybody. Okay, bye-bye, right, Umaira. Bye. -bye, bye.